Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, uh, to the book of Esther, the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Um, just before we do that, let's, uh, this is Super Bowl Sunday, and people were, pastor invited everybody to wear their favorite jerseys, that kind of thing. So the cameras guys are going to get ready to pan across the room. So if you have on a jersey celebrating your favorite team or a team or something, then will you please stand? Anybody that wore one of their jerseys, come on, stand up where you are. This is great. There they are. There they are. Great, great, great. Wonderful. And people thought I didn't wear one. They said, uh, Dr. Rutland, why didn't you wear one? No, no, I did. You did not get the message. You did not understand. I am 74 years old until today. I have never once preached in a sweater vest. But your pastor is known from Dan to Beersheba for preaching in a sweater vest. So in his honor, I wore a sweater vest. You all cheer for the Georgia Bulldogs and the Braves, whatever. I am on Team Travis. I've decided that his sweater vests are like Samson's hair. It's the secret of his anointing. So I thought, I need, I need some help this morning. I'm wearing a sweater vest. Well, this, uh, this is also, in addition to being Super Bowl Sunday, this is also, of course, um, the Valentine's weekend. If those of you men who suddenly say, oh my God, Valentine's, there's still a moment. Uh, you're all right. You can dash out. They have uh, roses at the grocery store. Sneak out of the house and get some. But not everybody is married or dating or whatever. I, I want to preach this morning on the combination of things, of Super Bowl, of victory and triumph and defeat, and on love. Uh, and, and how can we put those together? There's nothing that does that quite like the book of Esther. Uh, and now we're going to do things a little differently today. I'm going to read the text at the end of the message. So I know that's different. I'm not even going to read a text until we come to the end of the message. And then we're all going to participate in it in a very unique way. This is going to be very unusual today, but pastor's gone. <laughs> when the cat's away... <laughs> That's how he used to treat me when I went out of town. So, <laughs> I don't think there's any statement about love any more famous, any more powerful than what Jesus said in John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. We, we just so identify, particularly on the on the, the Valentine's weekend, we so identify love with romance. 
And I, and I, I want you to know I'm not opposed to that. You should see the roses I bought my sweetheart. Were they beautiful, baby? And, uh, and we've been married 55 years this coming summer. It's, it's been unbroken delight for me. And uh, Allison's had two or three minutes of happiness, too. And, and I, so I don't, I don't want anything I say today to make light of romance. I, I obviously believe in it, and, and I, I want you to know that. But there is a different kind of love. What about the love that a man risks his life on the battlefield for his friends? What about the guy when the... The grenade comes in the foxhole. There's no chance of throwing it out. And five men are going to be damaged. And one man throws himself on the grenade and takes the whole blow. Is that courage? There is courage. But Jesus identifies it as something else. He says it's love. Greater love hath no man than that he throws himself on the grenade for his friends. That's, that's what Jesus said. Who risks his life. Now, certainly the Bible has some wonderful and sweet romances. Abraham and Sarah, theirs was complicated. David and Bathsheba, theirs was more complicated. There was Ruth and Boaz, one of the great romances in Scripture. Isaac and Rebekah, one of the most enduring uh, of the patriarchal marriages and loves and romances. But none of that combines the whole issue of love and danger, quite like the story of Esther. Esther, which uh, the Hebrew name is Hadassah, but Esther is the, the story of love and high-risk danger and, and a remarkable victory all combined. Certainly, I know you, most of you, all of you know the basic story of Esther, but let me just sort of rehearse it for you a little bit before we come to actually reading some of it in the scripture. So first of all, Esther is, there are four main characters in the book of Esther. Uh, there is Ahasuerus, it says in, in the Hebrew Bible, Ahasuerus, but it probably means Xerxes, the king of Persia. Some, some historians think it means Artaxerxes, but but dating it the best we can, it probably means Xerxes. So I'll be calling that Xerxes. Then there is Haman. Haman is, is his, um, Haman is the, his, uh, Xerxes' most senior advisor. He's the top counselor to, to the king of Persia, Ahasuerus. So there's Haman. Haman is an anti-Semite. He, he hates the Jewish people, and he particularly hates the third person in the story, Mordecai, who is a Jewish civil servant. He works in the government of Ahasuerus. He is not near as high up as Haman. And then there is Mordecai's niece, an orphan girl named Esther Hadassah, for whom the book is named. She is orphaned, and Mordecai takes her into his household and raises her as almost as his own daughter. The, the book has some fascinating aspects to it. The first is this. 
one of the most interesting words in the book of Esther is the, is the Hebrew word mishte. Mishte is used 20 times in the book of Esther, and it's only used 28 times in the entire rest of the Bible. Mishte in Hebrew, it means um, a feast or a banquet. And the whole book of Esther really centers around feasting and fasting. Then, then there is the, a second word, which is not in the scripture. It's a literary word, but it's peripete. Peripete is a, um, is a literary device, which means something that goes in one direction and then suddenly reverses. We, we use an American vocabulary for, we say, he turned the tables on, turned the tables on him. So uh, a peripete is anything, a, dev- a literary device, a book, a story, a song that starts one way and flips the script. There is no book in the Bible and perhaps no story in literature that is a more powerful peripete than, than the book of Esther. I will give you one other one, and it's Moses. So let me give you, just so you understand a peripete. Uh, Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, orders that all Jewish babies, all the Hebrew baby boys, are to be killed at birth. Uh, that the Egyptian midwives are to, are to strangle the, the Hebrew baby boys after they're born. And God says... You want all the Hebrew baby boys killed. Here, he says to Pharaoh, here, let me give you one to raise. So if you remember, Moses' mother hides him in a basket in the Nile River. Moses, um, Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby in the basket, pulls him out of the river and takes him to the palace. And he is raised as Pharaoh's grandson. That's a sublime peripete to say Pharaoh decides to kill the baby boys and God says, here, let me flip the script and I'll let one of them be raised in the palace, right in Pharaoh's palace. So what is the, what is the basic story? The basic story is this. The king, Xerxes, um, for a reason, no need to go into all of it, but he exiles his wife Vashti. And so he needs a new wife. So they, they mount. Remember, this is a, this is a king of the Persian emperor. He has a vast empire. And he doesn't need a, a Congress to vote on anything or he just, by the wave of his hand, law is made. So he commands that virgin girls from all over the empire be brought to him and he will choose the one that he wants to be, the, to be the queen, to replace Vashti. So Mordecai, this Jewish uh, civil servant, this government worker, puts his niece, Esther, into the, into the contest. And she wins. The king absolutely adores her. The romantic nature of it is real. He he loves Esther. It is high romance. Mordecai tells Esther, don't tell Xerxes and don't tell anyone else that you're Jewish. Just, 
Just keep that a secret. At some point, we may need it. But right now, don't tell anybody. Then Haman wants the king to make a command that when he walks the streets, everybody has to bow to him just as if they were bowing to King Xerxes. So Xerxes says, great, that's fine. And everybody does that. When Haman, this wicked, Jew-hating, second-in-command, walks the streets, everybody bows. Oh, that's Haman. Oh, there's Haman the Great. Oh, there's Haman. The only one that won't bow is Mordecai. Mordecai says, I, I bend the knee only to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. I will not bow to you. And Haman hates him. Just at that time, Mordecai discovers a plot, uncovers a plot. He finds out about it, that there is a plot in the government to assassinate King Xerxes. And so Mordecai goes to Xerxes, makes it known to him. Xerxes investigates, finds out that it's real, has the men executed. But as government leaders tend to do, he forgets it. He executes those guys, but he forgets about Mordecai. Then one night, the king is restless. He's awake. He can't sleep. Something's bothering him. Something's worrying him. And so finally, he, he calls the court historian in and he says, look, is, is there something I'm missing? Is there something I'm, that's not making sense in this? And he says, I'll search. So they search and he says, well, there's one thing, a stitch you failed. This guy, Mordecai, who came and brought you the news and saved your life, you never rewarded him. Oh, Xerxes says, that's terrible. I, I'm going to reward him. But I, I don't know what would be a good reward. So he calls Haman and he says, I need your advice. If I wanted to show favor to someone, if I wanted to tell the whole kingdom of Persia this is a man I approve of. What should I do? Haman, this psychopathic, egotistical nutcase, he assumes that Xerxes means him. So he thinks, what would I like? And he says, oh, here's what you should do. Put the royal robe on him. Put your crown on his head. Put him on a white stallion and have someone lead him through the streets of Shushan, the capital of Persia, and saying, this is what Xerxes will do for the man he approves of. Xerxes says, that's great. That's great. It's Mordecai. And he says, you know what I think? I'll let you lead the horse. So Haman has to lead the horse with this Jew dressed like the king, sitting on the king's stallion, and Haman has to lead the horse through the city of Shushan, saying, this is what happens when the king of Persia approves of somebody. Well, his hatred is now at a totally uncontrollable level. So Haman comes up with a plot. He goes to Xerxes and he says, there is a people group 
scattered throughout the kingdom of Persia. And they are terrible. They're, they're costing the kingdom money. They, they're rebellious. They have a weird religion. They're terrible people. And we should kill them all. And he says, not only that, he says to the king, I will pay you thousands of pounds of silver. And what we're going to do, you get rich off of it. Make an announcement throughout all of Persia that on a certain day that anybody in Persia can break into the house of any Jew in the kingdom and kill them and take everything they've got. And Xerxes says, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. What day will we do it on? And so it says they cast lots. We don't cast lots anymore, but we do shoot dice. So it's like shooting dice. They cast lots to come up with the day. The word for lots in Hebrew is poor. Poor. Remember it. Lots, any word in Hebrew that's plural has I am on the M. So poor is a lot. Lots plural is purim. So they're going to cast lots to decide the day. Mordecai finds out about it, that this announcement is going to be made. And he goes to Esther, his niece, and he says, you've got to go to Xerxes and tell him this thing is going to happen. And now it's time to reveal to him that you're Jewish. Because if it happens, anybody could kill you and he loves you. So now's the time. Esther says, let me remind you, <laughs> Uncle Mordecai, there is a law in Persia. If anybody comes before King Xerxes, unless they're invited, he has a scepter in his hand. If he holds that scepter out, then you approach and touch the end of it and you're allowed to stay. He doesn't have to order you to be killed. He doesn't have to do anything if he sits there holding the scepter in his hand and doesn't extend it. If he just sits there, the guards will immediately execute you and cut your head off. Mordecai says, we're all going to die anyway. It may be that you have come to the kingdom just for this moment, just for a time such as this. Maybe this is the reason, maybe God caused Xerxes to fall in love with you. Maybe your beauty and your grace is not the whole story. Maybe God caused Xerxes to love you. Maybe that romance is so that you can act in greater love. So there is the love of her people that risks. She's this young girl, this bride, she's going to throw herself on the grenade. So I know we got a lot of young people here today and a lot of unmarried girls. So listen to old Dr. Mark. The, the flowers and the chocolate are nice. But when he starts moving in a little closer, say, I like the flowers, I like the romance, I like the dinner out. What I want to know is, will you take a bullet for me? What I want to know is, when life's grenades roll out on the floor, will you throw yourself on the grenade for me? 
It's fine to tell me I love you. <laughs> Do you love me even unto death? Greater love hath no husband than that he would throw himself on the grenade for his wife. That's not what Jesus said, but that's what he meant. Now, Esther fasts, and then she goes to the king uninvited. We don't, we, we don't see the danger in the story. She could die right that moment. All he has to do is nothing. If he just sits there, the guards will kill her instantly. So she comes in before him, and Xerxes extends the scepter, and she touches it. And he says, well, why do you, why do you want me to, why are you here? And she says, I want to cook dinner for you. <laughs> Does she know what she's doing? I mean, let's be honest, right, girls? <laughs> I want to cook dinner for you. I want to invite you to come to, to my house for a dinner and bring Haman with you. I would love to entertain both of you. He says, great, I'll do it. So they come, they have dinner. It's a great feast. It, 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 it is one of those words that I was saying. It is, it is a feast, a mishteh in Hebrew. They have a wonderful time. It's great. He says, wow, this is great. Xerxes says to her, I, I love this. This is wonderful. What else could I do? She says, come again tomorrow night. Oh, he says, great. So the next day, Haman says to himself, I am rolling. Not only does King Xerxes love me, Queen Esther loves me. He has no idea that she's Jewish. Queen Esther loves me. I am tip top. And he says, I'm going to hang that Mordecai from the highest gallows that has ever been built in Persia. And so he orders the gallows to be built. So on the day that the lots fell on and the Jews are killed, he's going to go and arrest Mordecai and hang him himself. He can't wait to hang Mordecai, this hateful, despicable Jew. So the next night, they go back for the second feast. And they eat and they have dessert and it's, it's fried chicken and mashed potatoes. These are southern Persians. And <laughs> when it's all over... The king says yet again, what can I do for you? She says, save my life. Don't let them kill me. He says, the king says, what are you talking about? She said, you ordered that people could go anywhere in Persia and kill a Jew and take everything they've got. And I'm Jewish. They're going to, they're going to kill me. I thought you said you loved me. You sent me flowers last Valentine's. What about all the chocolates? The chocolates didn't mean anything. You, you, didn't, you didn't care for me. And he says, what, how in the world did this happen? How could this happen? And she says, Haman. It was Haman's idea. So the king goes out of the room to get the guards. And Haman rushes toward Queen Esther to plead with her to save his life, and he stumbles and falls on her. 
Just at that moment, King Xerxes walks in and he says, what are you doing? You're not only going to kill my wife now, you're going to rape her right in front of me? He said, no, no, I, I stumbled. Well, it's uh, too late. So the king Xerxes hangs Haman on Mordecai's gallows. That is the sublime reversal. That is, that is the perfect peripete. The hatred, the violence, the murder that builds the gallows gets hanged on it. It is impossible for us to grasp sitting in this room. I believe it's impossible for us to grasp the, the psychopathy, the sociopathic murderous genocidal hatred for the Jewish people that has existed from time immemorial. There's always racial prejudice. There's always somebody that hates somebody. There's always somebody that wants to lynch somebody. There's always somebody that wants to kill somebody. But the hatred for the Jewish people, I believe that it is more than racial. I believe that Satan knows and has always known that Messiah, the hope of the world, would come through the Jewish people. And I think that when Pharaoh ordered the Jewish boys to be strangled, when Haman tried to have the, the, peop, the Jewish people in all of Persia slaughtered in a genocide, I believe that's satanic. It wasn't just Pharaoh. There's a mind behind the mind. There's hatred behind the hatred. You think about the, the gas chambers in the 30s and early 40s in, that, the, that the Nazis put up. That's, that, that cannot be explained sociologically. That's satanic. It's absolutely satanic, the monstrousness of it. So the, the queen says, now what are we going to do about my people? The law of the scepter is one law about Persian law you may not know. Here's another one. And it is this, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is the command of the king. When the king speaks, it becomes law, and it's law eternally. Nobody can reverse it. Not even the king. So once the king makes a command, he can't unmake it. So he says, I've already, I've already declared it. What can we do? And she says, allow the Jews to arm themselves, announce it that this thing is going to happen nationwide and the Jews can arm themselves and defend themselves. And so they do. And on that day when people attack, the Jewish people scattered across the width and breadth of the Persian empire are able to defend themselves and they actually win and they are actually prospered. They take from the people that were going to take from them. They kill the people that were going to kill them. Haman is hung on this gallows where he was going to hang Mordecai. It's a total reversal, a total and complete victory of love over hatred, a total and complete turning the tables, flipping of the script. 
Now, the Jewish people then said, we're going to feast every year of that victory of Esther and Mordecai over Haman and the, the terrible plot that he had. And they call that feast Purim, lots. Remember I said they cast lots to figure out what day the slaughter would take, the genocide would take place on. So they say they were going to choose a day to slaughter us. Instead, it becomes a day of celebration and victory. If you've never been in Israel on Purim, let me tell you something. It is rowdy. It is great. People write Haman on the soles of their shoes. They walk on Haman all day. They jump up and down. They stomp Haman. The little children dress up. Somebody said that Purim in Israel or in a synagogue, that Purim is kind of like uh, Halloween in America. That's not true. That's a very bad analogy. Halloween is dark and, and, and scary. This is fun. This is exciting. The children, the little girls all dress up like Esther. There's two and a half million Queen Esthers about this tall. The boys, some of them dress up like Mordecai. Some of them dress up like the king. Some of them dress up like Haman. And they party hardy. I told you that the word feast, mishte, it is a mishte, a nationwide, people-wide religious feast. I mean, they eat and drink, and when they go to synagogue, it's how, you know how synagogue can be so quiet and calm and everything else? Not on Purim. It's crazy rowdy. When they read the scripture on Purim, every time the word Haman is said, the people go crazy, booing and, and stomping their feet, and they have little noise-making ratchets. Uh, in the, the Yiddish word for that is a grogger, but it's a ratchet, and they whirl them around. They make this horrible noise, and the people boo. Every time they say the name Mordecai or the name Esther, the people cheer. They feast, and they rejoice, and they memorialize the the peripatee, the, the twist. That's what Joseph said. That which you have designed for my evil, God has made it for good. So what do we say to these things? Listen, if you haven't figured it out, can I be the one to tell you? Satan hates you. I, I know you say, wait a minute, I'm a wonderful person. That's why he hates you. Satan hates you. He's a liar. He's a killer. He says he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. From the moment that you are conceived, are you listening to me? From the moment that you were conceived, Satan plotted to steal everything you've got, just like the Persians, to kill you and to destroy your destiny and your calling. That's what abortion is about. It is a satanic, genocidal murder of unborn babies because Satan doesn't know who that baby might be. Satan doesn't know who that may be. If I can kill that baby in the womb, there's no way that baby can fulfill its destiny. It is why, it is what happened 
in Germany during World War II. Do you know that during the reign of Adolf Hitler, that there was only one Jewish feast that was outlawed? Of course, the Jews were arrested and they were executed and it was horrible. But there was only one Jewish feast that was outlawed. Do you know what it was? Purim. Purim, why? Because the Nazis feared that they would be thrown into the gas chambers that they built, hung on the gallows where they hanged Jews. They, they, they feared this reversal. Julius Streicher, who was the editor-in-chief of Der Sturmer, which was a highly virulent and anti-Semitic propaganda piece for the Nazis, and a big advisor in the Nazi government, Julius Streicher was convicted in the judge in the trial at Nuremberg and sentenced to hang. When they marched him up on the gallows, do you know what Stryker's last words were? Purimfest, 1946, and they hanged him. He realized God had flipped the script on him and all the other Nazis and all those who hated the Jews. And God wants to flip the script on Satan and his hatred for us and for the church. I, I'm telling you, I don't know what lies ahead for the church in America or anywhere else. I, I'm neither a prophet nor the child of a prophet. But I want to tell you something. My feeling is it's going to get darker before the sun comes up. My own observation, I'm not a prophet, but I am an observer of history. And I, I think it's going to get darker and darker. How will we face that? What we must do in those times is say, I don't know what Satan is doing. All I know is I know what God is doing. God's going to flip the switch. God's going to turn the tables. <laughs> God is working out our ultimate victory even while Satan is building the gallows upon which he will be hung. Now that's the joy of Purim. That's the delight of it. They, they, make, uh, they make these little cookies, the three-cornered cookies called uh, hamantaschen. It, it, it's hard to translate from Yiddish. It may mean it may mean Haman's hats. It could be Haman's uh, satchel or a briefcase or something like that. It could even it could even be translated Haman's ears. And they they eat these Hamantaschen. Don't you see the wonderful Jewish humor? He tried to take a bite out of us. We'll take a bite out of him. We'll eat Haman's ears or his hat, whatever it is. And they give gifts and they celebrate and it's rowdy. It's rowdy. So I told you some people said it's like an, like a Jewish Halloween. I said, no, it's not. It's more like a Jewish Mardi Gras. It, it, it is rowdy and it's rowdy in synagogue when they read the scriptures. So I'm going to let the band come back up and we're going to read some scriptures together. Pastor's gone, we'll do whatever we want to do. <laughs> now, let's put the first scripture up on the screen. Now, do you see as it starts, it starts with Mordecai. So, 
When we come to that, and, I, and we're going to all read together, now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. Okay, that, now that was just pathetic. I have seen rowdier cheers in Presbyterian churches. All right. Now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. Or later on, we'll come to this name, Esther. And then we'll come to this name, Haman. And that, that, you know, really, that wasn't much. Some of you, we don't have any ratchets, but some of you can take your Bible and bang on your Bible, stomp your feet, whatever it is. You cannot damage the building. And I know some of you, no firearms. Okay. So we're, 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 going, to, we're going to just boo and hiss and make noise against Haman. And if you, if you think Haman is written on the sole of your feet, because I have the enemy under my feet. I have the enemy under my feet. All right, here we go. We're going to read quite a bit of scripture. It's going to get rowdy in here. I know visitors are saying, I'm, I'm coming back when the real pastor's here. I, <laughs> this can't be what they do. All right. You ready? Here we go. Let's read together. Now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. <laughs> the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah. That is Esther. His uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together under Shushan the palace, the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also under the king's house to the custody of Haggai, the keeper of the women. Now we'll go to the next passage. I've just picked out some passages. So Esther was taken under King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the 10th month, which is the month Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther. Above all the women, she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther. Even Esther's feast, and he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred, nor her people. In other words, nobody knew she was Jewish. As Mordecai had charged her for Esther, did the commandment of Mordecai. 
like as when she was brought up with him. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did reverence him. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spoke daily unto him, he hearkened not unto them, and they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand for he... Thank you, thank you. Go back one more for Mordecai. I'm glad you caught me on that. I'm not a very good rabbi. For he had told them, he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not nor did reverence him, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is lots. That is the lot before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad. Of course, it's the Jews. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. It doesn't mean cause them to suffer, to allow them to remain alive. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of this business to bring it into the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than any of the other Jews for if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place listen to me what that means is God wants to use you but if you don't let him use you he'll find somebody else but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me.
neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. So will I go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. That is love. That is love. All the romance in the world, all the flowers and chocolates can't make up for someone who says, I will put myself in the way of death, immediate execution, that the people I love may be taken care of. That is a reason to celebrate the greatest love of all. Greater love hath no man than that a man lay down his life for his friends. What a mighty God we serve, who having taught on sacrificial love, then models it through Jesus Christ. Satan thought that he had Jesus done to death, to death. And the resurrection was a peripatee. It turned the tables on Satan in a wonderful way. The wonderful thing about this whole celebration of Purim is it's a celebration of divine victory. Here's an odd little note. The word God is not mentioned in the entire book of Esther. Only two books in the whole Bible, the word God is not mentioned. The Song of Solomon, which is about love, and Esther, which is about love. Because when you say sacrificial love, you don't even have to say God. God is on every page, every letter, every word, and we can say with Esther, victory is mine. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.